Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to another special episode of Finding Peaks. I am Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer of Peaks Recovery Centers, Chief Clinical Officer, Guru, Clinical wow. Officiant, Part-Time Uber Driver. <laughs> Clint Nicholson, Chief Operating Officer, Part-Time Lyft Driver. <laughs> We actually share, yeah, we share a car. Yeah. They fight all the time about yeah. it. He steals his Uber sticker, he steals his Lyft yeah. sticker. Here we are. Here we are. You're a Coke guy, I'm a Pepsi guy, I mean. Yeah, yeah. it's all about the bumper sticker. Yeah. Kidding and jokes aside, folks, of course, we're just trying to liven it up a little bit here, be a little bit more uh, intentional about drawing you in to talk about some serious topics that uh, we want to speak to the world about. Um, here at Finding uh, Peaks, uh, as an episode, as me as the host, I'm just going to continue to talk more about it, that I am invested in this concept of disrupting an industry through our company culture and our vision. And with that, hopeful that uh, the folks on the other side of uh, these cameras and the social medias uh, and so forth, the ones emailing us fervently at findingpeaks at peaksrecovery.com, do it. Thoughts, ideas, questions, uh, bring it forward. Uh, hopeful to give you information for which um, if you are pursuing treatment services, whether it's substance use disorder or mental health primary uh, in that regard, that at the end of the day, the information that we're giving you empowers you to seek treatment, uh, to find the programs that are appropriate for you and your loved one, and to identify where uh, treatment centers may fall short in actually delivering those services uh, to your loved one. So today we are going to talk about um, kind of societal norms and culture and how that influences substance use disorder and mental health. Uh, for those out there who are like, why is he using substance use disorder and not the word addiction, is because our prior episode, we really sort of went after that word um, and got a little passionate about it. And I don't want to use the word for fear that he will, <laughs> he will give me a good punch in the face. So trying to move away from it, it's familiar. It's a figurative punch in the face. Figurative punch Absolutely. in the face, totally. Yeah. He can't do that. It's an HR issue. <laughs> you are my boss, yeah. Um, so <laughs> cultural norms, our experiences, it's something that we see within addiction treatment. It does influence behaviors. It does cause uh, trauma uh, for individuals within society. I was talking um, a, a pretty uh, famous marketing uh, platform in our industry without using their name uh, was recently talking about, for example, how uh, during election season, right after election season, addiction treatment experience or addiction treatment centers and mental health centers in, experience an increase in call volume related to the results of um, elections in that regard. Huh. So something about elections is stirring the pot of substance use disorder and mental health in that regard. Uh, it's interesting, I don't have much more to expand or gain insights into that, but that is curious. There is something Absolutely. about the world we live in, the society we live in that causes people to experience um, suffering in those processes to the degree that they'll reach out to centers like ours uh, to address what's going on. Uh, maybe the hangover post-election, maybe just the anxiety about who just took power and what that means for the individual. Uh, but really to open this up, I'm um, going to take a general direction towards you know, the benefits in disrupting an industry. 
or taking a look at what it means to disrupt an industry, whether you know, co-ed facilities or gender-specific care is going to be really important, especially given the fact that when we talk about male versus you know, female, that we're not really culturally nurturing um, these binary terms alone, that it is much greater than just those terms by themselves. But from our lens within treatment, you know, it's kind of at a high level. What are we seeing on the therapist side, given your guys' talents and, th and being therapists, that, you know, whether it's trauma or dri something that's driving the substance use disorder or disrupting them from an anxious, depressive state, what are we seeing kind of through the lens of our patients that you are seeing where culture is actually playing an influence on how they feel about who they are? Mm. <laughs> I feel like there's so much to unpack in what you just said, truthfully. Um, and I, I appreciate you mentioning that obviously gender specific care is automatically binary. Mm -hmm. uh, and, we, and we can do things, variable things, uh, to try to bridge that gap, but, but it's a binary decision. I just want to acknowledge that. And um, however, that being said, um, you know, having spent a lot of time on both of our campuses, our men's campus and our women's campus, um, the, the culture that, whether or not it's from, well, it's certainly from society, but the culture of both of our campuses are very different. I, um, you guys have probably visited both of our campuses, I assume. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Done mm -hmm. the tour. That one yeah, time. Yeah, done the tour. Um, Online. Did a tour. <laughs> yeah. But I do think, um, you know, like at, at the, just in general, like during groups at our, at our men's campus, we talk clinically about, um, really helping men truthfully, like it's an excavating process of like helping men gain insight into themselves and um, maybe even allowing themselves to release some difficult emotions that they haven't been able to release. And <clears throat> the women's house tends to be a lot about containment where the women have a lot more access, it seems like, to being expressive and being open and, and are a lot more in touch with their trauma. Um, and it's about kind of helping them kind of make sense of it and then also contain it. Um, and it, combining these cultures in a primary care setting, um, I, I think would be a lot like trying to combine water and oil. Is that, that's not a thing, right? You can't do that very well. They don't mix. You can mix. do it, just not well. Yeah, yeah you sure. can do it, but they don't, they don't mix very well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, uh, I think that's why, that's the appeal, I think, of, of a gender-specific program is that, um, is just having that ability, like it's just a different skill set. If I'm just going to be totally honest with you, and I think, um, and we see it too clinically. Like we have clinicians that are drawn to work more with the men, and clinicians that are drawn to work more with the women because um, just of their their skill set and approach uh, fits better in one side or the other. And not good or bad, but um, just simply a, a fact is what I notice. I think that you said something really important. Um, like, it, I do think that there is. Uh, the level of care is actually important when you talk about gender-specific treatment. Um, when you're doing the residential sort of stabilization model, uh, safety is, is vital towards, because what we're, again, trying to do is help people access vulnerability. And so in order to establish safety, uh, I think what I've recognized over the years and I think what we see in our programming is that gender-specific programs actually do foster a sense of safety that, um, maybe uh, a co-ed program would actually create barriers to. Um, and so by providing these sort of uh, gender-specific 
um, approaches, we allow people to be able to explore in a way that is, um, helps them actually kind of bypass the, uh, the shame and expectations and um, that, that the sort of like binary model actually imposes on people. Um, now, I think as you sort of progress through your treatment, the integration of men and women actually becomes really important. And I think it becomes uh, really helpful and really beneficial because in the end, we don't live in these sort of like vortexes. You know, we, we live together um, with one another. And so being able to sort of uh, kind of reestablish and help people develop that sense of safety within a co-ed environment is also really important. So. Yeah, and, and to that point, uh, and, it, and I think it's worth mentioning to the viewers that, you know, challenge me, of course, go to the Google search engines, whatever, and, and, you know, and, and ask Google, you know, in relation to addiction, how Google the data and you'll see that women and men experience addiction, for example, differently than one another. Generally, you'll see that men are using higher quantities of the drugs and they're using it more often, where uh, women are generally using uh, less quantities and less often in that regard, but both at experiencing uh, frustrations around that addiction. Now, of course, that's not going to be true across the board, uh, but when we think about you know stabilization and vulnerability coming into a setting, if we're exper if our experiences are different on one side of the equation coming into uh, another experience, I think in ways that makes us vulnerable um, to the people that we're around in a in a pretty significant way. But with those you know, touches of differences uh, for people entering treatment, I think it's interesting from a residential standpoint you know, uh, that it feels good and first and foremost to break it up and move them apart, but that's interesting to think, of course, that well, at some point there has to be this integration. Um, maybe interesting is the wrong word because it is the world we live in mm -hmm. uh, in that regard, but the world that we live in prior to coming to, you know, to a place like Peaks uh, is scary and we've been mistreated in a variety of different ways and we have different experiences within that. You know, maybe it's trauma, uh, maybe it's me mental health, maybe it's a female in the way her dad treated her versus a male in the way that his dad treated him and out of those experiences it seems best to create that separation so that that uh, vulnerability and the ability to bring that forward uh, can thrive but also where where do, we, where do you guys think we have blinders on in this moment? Because we operate a gender-specific you know, uh, culture, of course, and I think those experiences for us are uh, really important, but um, challenging you guys to think about maybe in a gender-specific setting, and maybe it's around the binary language of just men and women where we're not really seeing that being fully efficacious. I mean, I think, I'm not sure it's a blinder, like, or maybe it is, like I'm aware of the blinder yeah. that like, creating gender-specific program, it serves a significant portion of the population, but it doesn't serve another part of the population. I think that's very much true. Um, and then I do think like another course correction we've had, I think just in the last month or two is we kind of had a lot of our uh, residential staff match the gender of the program they were working in. And it, and it, and it wasn't the best idea necessarily. I think it, it's helpful to have um, well-boundaried, healthy people of both genders interacting with our clients and, and we had kind of began to isolate our programs into very specific camps almost from a staff perspective. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And I've run plenty of uh, programs in our, or plenty of groups and individual sessions in our women's program. And there is, there is some, uh, I think there is some power to having like a, uh, a healthy, well-boundaried, um, compassionate person providing some care in that women's program. And then at the same time, like, you know, we have a lot of really successful uh, staff members that are women working in our men's program that provide an element of care and compassion and concern that, um, that has been really help helpful, I think. I don't know what other blind spots do you think we have? I mean, I, I do think that when we, you know, anytime you sort of like separate out um, into categories or groups, you, you are reinforcing some of the stereotypes that go along with yeah. those. So there, the, in, in a way, we, um, having gender-specific programming does further entrench some of those uh, kind of variables and I would say um, kind of uh, be beliefs about self and experiences of shame and victimization. I think it kind of can reinforce that sometimes rather than helping to break that up, which is, I, I mean, we live in a diverse world, you know, like we are, like gender is a spectrum, you know, everything is a freaking spectrum, really. Mm -hmm. And to, when, when we reinforce that the world is black and white, we, we miss all of the gray. And in the end, I mean, the gray is where we heal. And so I think that it's, uh, I believe pretty firmly in gender-specific programming to a point, but I think that it has its limits. Like mm -hmm. there is a ceiling that you hit, at which point uh, it's kind of run its course, and now it's time to fully engage mm -hmm. with the world around you. You know, these these sort of like, um, I don't know, kind of like self-manifested little worlds that we try to live in. And I think that, and maybe that's that kind of goes back to the election era, right? Like I think that we do. We get we kind of find our own little cloister of our own little beliefs and our own little circle of people that feel and believe the same thing that we do. And when that gets disrupted, it is extremely um, imbalancing. Yeah. But um, in the end, that's what we're trying to learn how to do is to, to balance and stay still in chaos rather than try to avoid or ignore it. Yeah, and, and, you know, and, and to couch it really in terms of, you know, to bring outside societal norms in, you know, uh, America has had many discussions about it and about non-binary bathrooms uh, in that regard and that somebody who identifies as a female, uh, for example, with male genitalia wants to use the female bathroom and there's a lot of tension about that within society but at the same time we've had individuals come in who are male per their genitalia in that regard transitioning into uh, womanhood and going through that experience and we've uh, placed those individuals into our uh, women's program at time and out of that once it's become aware through the whispers of culture a parent finds that or something and seems to be you know dysregulated at some level in the same way that culture is out there you know so for me I you know went around and I always found myself in the marketing stance of like oh we're gender specific and that's really great and then people would say well what if they are non binary in that regard and what are you guys doing about that and how does that blur these norms of you know gender specific care at the end of the day and we've also done it the other way women or, or individuals with female genitalia identifying as male and making that transition who went into our men's program as well too and um, and then tension occurs throughout that as an experience but uh, 
I think those are, you know, the types of things that are playing roles within this that for which, you know, treatment centers such as ours, mental health treatment centers and so forth, integrated care, all have to be accounting for in real time because these individuals uh, across the board and the spectrum are all suffering in their own, you know, unique way uh, in that regard. So, um, so having a, a gender specific camp is, you know, good to a degree, but at the same time uh, really requires um, an ability to be uh, more relational and you know less transactional from those yeah. those terms. Absolutely, yeah. it's complicated. Yeah, you know? and you have to allow it to be complicated. I think if you try to keep it simple, um, it'll fail. What do you guys think is the biggest like concern? Men and women, early stages of recovery, in the same room, group room together. What do you think is the, the, the sort of liability there for which this industry might fear most, you know, within those moments? I mean, there's the obvious things of people struggling, people who are maybe having some difficulty or haven't regulated uh, their impulses in a long time, uh, providing them an opportunity um, to become distracted by either uh, uh, trying to attract people of the opposite sex, but don't get me wrong, it happens um, even in gender-specific programs, so I'm not, uh, uh, that, that, right. yeah. that, that isn't the only reason by any stretch of the imagination, but just having sat in, in, I don't know, countless men's and women's groups, it is, men when they're in groups with other men, they do share about their shame in a different way, or they share about their stories, or they share about their struggles in a different way than if women are introduced to the room, and it's the same with the women, like I, I do think, um, for a period of time, I think that's just really important. And I think even, you know, even in the aftercare setting, um, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea for people to still attend um, gender-specific either groups or support groups or just have a friend group that's gender-specific where they can talk about these things without kind of some of that other distraction. But, I mean, it's the same reason why we, you know, in some ways we don't, uh, intentionally try to trigger people or tempt them with things or, or have liquor bottles laying around. Like it, there's no value in that. Creating that safety is just to me about removing a lot of, um, a lot of temptations maybe for people to, that, so they can just really dial in and focus on themselves. And, and having done this in both settings, I can just tell you the, the depth and the quality and the safety um, in, in the group setting certainly is just different when it's gender specific. It's, it's yeah. for sure for, for a period of time to your point. Well, mm -hmm. and I think, I mean, to your point, Jason, like whether you like it or not, um, trauma is typically experienced through a gendered, a gendered lens. You know, I think that a, yeah. a lot of, um, of the traumas that we see and that we address are actually gender specific or um, gender impacted, I guess maybe would be a more appropriate way of saying it. So when you are bringing people, especially who are sort of like early in this process, who are just starting to access these feelings, who are processing shame, who are experiencing vulnerability, who are still working on establishing a, a sense of felt and internal safety, bringing those two worlds together can be um, cataclysmic to a certain degree. So it just has to be done very mindfully. Mm -hmm. And um, they are, there are certain ways to approach it. And um, I think that there are also ways in which you can talk about it directly, you know, to, to not try to avoid it actually, but to really engage in it and, and speak to the fact that, you know, um, the way that 
men and women, I think, experience uh, being a victim in our culture is really different. And um, I think that there's a lot of really interesting dialogue to be had around that. Um, so that would be like just an example of one way that you can kind of open that door. But in the end, you've got, um, you know, when you're, when you're bringing these traumas together, you always have to be really careful. Yeah, yeah it, and I, this is just the, the kind of, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and trying to describe something that uh, is just coming to mind as we have this uh, conversation, but uh, you know, in consumerism, for example, in America, like there, there are, there's specialization of services. There is, you know, Peaks Recovery is an addiction treatment center to resolve, you know, in a, you know, mental health issues and uh, substance use disorder. And then there's the, the doctor to help, you know, manage pain. And then there is the restaurant that specializes in serving food that you can't necessarily cook yourself or whatever the case might be. Um, what I'm getting at here is that uh, oftentimes we experience things that we need as an internal frustration, hungry, externalize it, go to a restaurant, i am got an addiction, externalize it, I go to this place, uh, can't sleep, externalize it, get on these meds as an experience at the end of the day. And so for me, in the seven and a half years or so now that I've been doing this and just you know witnessing this within addiction treatment cultures and uh, integrated care as well too, is this immediate externalization to create that internal wellness. And the individuals that we treat and serve are so disrupted, generally speaking, when you take the one externalization feature, drugs and alcohol away from them, or the environments which it was more comfortable to be depressed in or anxious in or those sorts of things. Now they're in these new environments. And we've talked about it before, it becomes about the pillows and the couches and uh, you guys' TVs are only 70 inches and it should be 85 and, you know, uh, Couching the silliness aside from it, it feels like in a, in a, in a co-ed facility, we start wanting to feel internally well, and because culturally speaking, of course, we're uh, largely a heterosexual population, there's a significant potential for conflict there in the externalization of, I don't feel well in here, they've just taken this. I mean, I can't think of a greater dopamine kick on the other side of losing all that dopamine kick from drugs and alcohol that sex as an opportunity provides. Now, it doesn't, as you guys are pointing out, discourage externalization in gender-specific cultures because uh, people can be sexual in multiple ways than just being heterosexual in that regard. I think the world has taught us that <laughs> uh, in a big way as we have more and more of these conversations and bring it to light. But it seems to be that conflict that is most, uh, as an experience, dire within thinking about whether to cross that bridge into a co-ed facility. And if we're not disrupting that, then it leaves this major externalization and distraction in front of us. And if I'm motivated by that, I'm not gonna talk about how you know, my dad smacked me around. Maybe culture has taught me to be strong and big. And yeah. now I see wounded you know, female on the other side as a male heterosexual and I think, oh, I'm just gonna be tough man and I'm gonna save. And now I'm being you know, maybe codependent and all these sort of features out of it. And I think that's the rub that um, to the core of this that we're not thinking about in terms of business models, but it's a cheaper business model in our industry to invite the model in to have them all on one site. And yeah, they're housed together here and here, but we're running groups in the middle here. And then we have two or four you know, staff members at nighttime trying to keep all the kids apart and <laughs> in between. But the reality is with intentionality and once that external, external hook takes place, it's nearly impossible to do productive work. Mm -hmm. um, 
Am I wrong? Am I off? No, you, I don't think you're wrong at all. And I do think, I think people, I mean, you're mentioning substance use. Like when, when people are struggling with substance use issues, <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> it's hard catch, to work around the catch, word addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I will say it is, it's challenge, like they're used to feeling an uncomfortable feeling and I have to do something about it and that something provides immediate relief from it. And so when somebody is four days sober, that impulse doesn't go away. Like I'm feeling uncomfortable, I need to do something about it. Called a craving, right? Mm -hmm. um, but okay, now I don't have access to my, what I would prefer to do, so I'm gonna access a variety of other things. And sex is a really powerful one to your point. You know, e eating issues, like we're not gonna set up like a gambling parlor in a rehab either, because that would be appealing too. Like if I could go get lost, um, in a gambling way, provide the rush and all of that. But, but I do think like that's part of this early process and stabilization is saying, okay, you have these feelings that feel intense and overwhelming, but can you recognize that they don't last forever? In fact, they don't last very long at all if you kind of let them. What lasts a long time is ruminating about them and telling yourself I have to do something about this rather than just like letting it come through and, and being mindful about it. Um, so providing gender-specific care to me per takes away one very dramatic thing that people can do oftentimes or would be drawn to do. Mm -hmm. And there's an intensity too that like, okay, I'm, people are sharing things that maybe they haven't talked to anybody about and, and it's being well-received. It gets really easy to conflate um, empathy with love, right? Mm -hmm. Like if people are understanding what you're saying, it's easy to feel like, oh my God, this is the most important person in my life that I met yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So yeah. that, I don't know, that's where I see it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that really, I guess for me, treatment and recovery is the process of sort of reconnecting to self. And you're talking about externalization, right? Um, we, there's, there's still that tendency early on to, to believe that, that your answers and your connections lie outside of you. And I think that you can create environments like a co-ed program, especially at that like early residential stabilization period in which you start to reinforce that, or at least, I don't know, it's almost like you're kind of setting people up. You're tempting fate really at that point. And when in reality, what you really need to be doing is getting people to go inside, go inwards, right? Um, and anything that you can do early on in the process of treatment, whether it's for uh, substance dependence or mental health, is help people reconnect to themselves because they people come in completely detached. You know, they, I've most people come in can just completely lost, and I mean that's why identity and purpose is one of our our primary program weeks. You know, mm -hmm. that's one of our intensives because people have completely lost that sense of self. So, um, and I think that. Anything that we can do as a, a program, anything that we can do as therapists um, to help people remain focused on what's going on inside as opposed to outside, the better the job that we're doing, essentially. That makes sense? To me. Yeah. To me. Hopefully yeah, the viewers uh, in this yeah. regard. And I think we'll just, we'll take it out from there. This is a... Uh, 
This is a topic that is uh, interesting and it's, uh, it's got tones of combativeness in it, uh, the way that culture probably experiences addiction and what it is and how addiction treatment centers, substance use disorder centers, integrated care, <laughs> mental health uh, should be uh, behaving in this world. Um, but there are internal conflicts within our industry and the services that we provide each and every day. And these are things that, whether co-ed or gender specific facility, that we have to be thinking about in real time and how are we going to disrupt that and you know in our experience I think I would prefer to be generous but it feels like you we do away with a lot by separating that out from the very beginning but if we're not thinking thoughtfully about these things and the business model is just to push them all in one room and think like here's the group therapy go but yeah they sleep in separate places that's just not being thoughtful about how this works uh, at the end of the day because individuals who are receiving our services are hollow within and looking for largely anything to fill that space and that void within. Um, and sometimes these simple, you know, primitive features of our existence are the things that they will quickly move to fill those in. And it's just something to be mindful of. So over the next few weeks, uh, Jason Friesman and I and Clinton as well, too, will be joined by Dr. Ashley Johnson, uh, our present chief medical officer at Peaks Recovery. And we're going to be talking about major, dis major depressive disorder uh, in a variety of different ways, uh, how it connects with or uh, more innovative care, how that connects with treatment, um, the limitations of medication management in that regard, uh, the complexity of what takes place within treatment episodes around this. Um, so uh, for my next hosting position, I'll be joined by Clinton and Dr. Uh, AJ, as we call her at the office, and Jason will have another person and Dr. AJ, I suppose, to talk about uh, what they're looking at. So stay tuned for that. Uh, I think we're going to learn a ton about that. Uh, and, you know, especially around the whole notion, there are slogans around there that say, keep recovery simple. And with major depressive disorder, it is just not simple. It is quite complex and really difficult to navigate in real time. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, the TikToks, the Facebook, back to TikTok, follow Chris Burns. <laughs> you know, screaming at it, whatever. He's passionate about recovery. It's energized. He brings a lot of people into it. They do squatting and all kinds of interesting things that have me just reeling for more. So check it out. Uh, Facebook, Finding Peaks at PeaksRecovery.com. Questions, insight, thoughts, ideas, concerns, whatever it is, give it to us. We want to bring future episodes to you that are of value to you, uh, the consumer of these types of services uh, in that regard. So until next time, signing off. <laughs>